Hey everybody, welcome to Humanize Me. I'm Bar Campolo, this is my podcast, and the good news is that in weeks to come, I have lined up some really cool interviews with some really wonderful people, um, and we're going to be talking about all different kinds of stuff, some science stuff, some philosophy stuff, some you know politics stuff, all of which is like sort of aimed at taking weird ideas and figuring out how we can use them to live better lives, to be better human beings, to be, to, to, to care for other people in better ways and to be more joyful. But this week is actually, although I've got all the stuff lined up, I've got people coming in to talk this week is I'm, I'm going to clean up a little housekeeping. And what I mean by that is about a year and a half ago, I did an interview with Hemant Mehta on his podcast and in the middle of that interview, there was a, a chunk of time, about a half an hour, in which we ended up talking about how people who don't believe in God deal with death. And, and I got so much feedback from that episode from Hemant's listeners. Uh, you know, I, I've had so many requests for that same kind of conversation from my own listeners that I thought, you know what? What I should do is I should pull that part of the conversation and put it up on Humanize Me so I, I can stop cutting and pasting and, and trying to send people linking and just say, go to my website, it's right there. So if you've heard this conversation before, I, you know, I'm sorry, but I think for most of my listeners, this will be new stuff. And, um, and I, I think it's, it's kind of good stuff to be talking about, good stuff to be thinking about. I would love to hear what you think of it. Um, you can check me out at bartcampolo.org. And you can find out about all sorts of stuff, including how I counsel and coach people, including stuff about the documentary movie that I'm working on with John Wright, who was actually here this past weekend shooting some B-roll footage. And so, yeah, so, so go to the website, drop me a note, let me know what you think. In the meantime, here's, my, here's, here's a chunk of my conversation with Hemant Mehta that I think will be pretty good for the Humanize Me crowd. You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Why do you think the military has had such a hard time adjusting to the idea of humanist chaplains? Because it seems like when they are on campuses, they work really well wherever they are. But the military says we don't want any humanist chaplains because they don't every time they talk about it, too, in, including politicians, they never seem to understand what it is they would offer. And it's like, no, soldiers who are in harm's way, uh, especially the bunch of them who are non-religious, they need that sort of support in a way no one else does. I don't know why it's such I, a hard fight. To I don't get know. That. I don't know. But here's something I, I, I think I would suspect. I suspect that one of the... And, and it's funny because it's not confined to military chaplaincy, but I suspect that chaplaincy in the military has a lot to do with dealing with death. And in a sense, the role of a chaplain in a military situation is to help people feel okay about dying and feel like, you know, to make sense of death. Does that make sense? Like... You're yeah. in a military setting. And they don't see what and, non-religious people could offer in that sense? And exactly. And, and, and in many cases, I think they're, they're, they may not be far off because if there's one thing that I haven't seen the secular community do well, 
It's to help people face death. Okay, so let's talk about that because this is something I, I definitely wanted to talk to you about, which is what is the problem with the way we deal with it? Why can't we talk about death? This is one of the things churches offer people. Uh, they offer this idea of immortality. You're going to live forever. A very hopeful notion of after you die on this earth, you're going to go to the afterlife. You're going to go to heaven. You will always be around. You will never lose your loved ones in that sense. It's false hope, I think, but it's a very comforting idea. What do atheists have to offer? What do humanists have to offer in the way of death? You know, it's funny because Robert Ingersoll, who's like my great hero, like if there's any thinker that I have been shaped by, it's Robert Ingersoll, who's known as the great agnostic. Right. And, you know, was, was spe- the, the world's most popular public speaker in about 1890. Ingersoll said that the, the mistake that you make is thinking that religion created the idea of eternal life. He said the idea of eternal life happens every time a loved one dies. When you love somebody and they die, your most desperate and fervent wish is, I want to be with them again. I wish I could, we could have one more conversation. I wish. And so what happens is, is that the hope of immortality is just a natural function. That, 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 that hope emerges wherever love meets death. You're going to have the hope of immortality. Now, religion kind of codifies that and builds around it and says, sort of says, like, listen, I'm, I, want to, I want to speak to that hope. It's really true. This is how it works. This is how it's going to happen. But the hope for immortality is just there. It's a natural thing you're saying. What's, and, and it is natural. The weird thing about it is Ingersoll then goes on to say, but here's the one thing I'm sure of is if we actually lived forever, we would probably not love each other. That love is what happens in the, in the context of the urgency, the awareness that we have only a limited amount of time, we only have a finite amount of time, and because it's finite, it's precious. And because it's precious, we don't have any time to waste. I need to connect with you now because this is our moment. And if I had all the time in the world, he says, we would have no, we would have no urgency. So he says that death is what treads out the weeds between us. It's, it's what creates the path between us. It's something we all have in common, and it creates an urgency for connection. And so what he says is he says, it may be that love is a flower that only grows on the edge of the grave. That, that, that death is, it, it, without death, there would be no love, and without love, eternal life would be a curse. And basically every... Compels us to act now. It compels us to act now. And so you say, you know, you say, what I think has to, what I think happens is, is that we need to stop seeing death as the negation of life and see it as the catalyst for every good thing in life. Now, on a scientific level, it works exactly the same way. Single-celled organisms reproduce by um, splitting. And as a result, everything that an organism leads to live, that, that single-celled organism leads to live, it takes, like, when it reproduces, it's still got that left. So single-celled organisms with enough energy and food sources can be immortal, theoretically. They, they, they never have splitting. to die. But what happens is when organisms be- start to c- become complex, what they do is they start having different parts of the organism do different functions. 
And as they become really complex, like you've got feet and they have nothing to do with reproduction. You've got hands and eyes. Even your brain has nothing to do with your reproduction. That's all in another part of your body. You're specialized out. Now, the good news about that complexity is, is that it makes the development of awareness possible. The bad news is, is that as soon as you, as soon as you have like a shell carrying your um, reproductive capability, what you have is you have the reality that that shell dies. And so you say, wait, are you saying that, that death is the price of being aware of how wonderful life is? And I go like, yeah, you want immortality? You can have it. You want to be aware of, of, of love? You want to experience beauty? You want awe and wonder? You can have that. You just can't have them together. And so death is necessary. And that's even before we get to the idea that we live on a finite planet and that if you don't die and get out of the way, nobody else gets to experience the wonder of life. And so what happens is, is that you say, like, it's, life is this amazing thing. It's it, it, the wonder of it, the fact that you can see your own hand and that you don't even know how your eyes are working and you don't know how the electrical currents are working, but all this amazing stuff is happening. The wonder of life is this, it's like you've won the, it's so improbable too, when you think about, you know. The, we the, won the cosmic lottery. Yeah, that's what they say, yeah. right? And, I, and there's a lot of truth to that. Like just the sheer improbability of you and I being here, yeah. conscious, alive, liking each other, connecting in the way that we are right now, it's so amazing. And I guess what I would say to you is, is it's like you won the cosmic lottery. It's, it's unseemly, isn't it? If, if somebody wins a million dollars and they stand around whining because it wasn't 10 million, <laughs> like, Here's the deal. I didn't exist for 13 billion years. And after I die, I, I won't exist for billions more. These 90 years or 70 years or whatever I get, this is my brief vacation from death, from non-existence. <laughs> it really is. And so the thing is, is that I, I go on, I went on a vacation a couple of years with my family. A rich friend of ours let us stay in his beach house in Hilton Head. Sweet. And we were there for two weeks, and it was like a mansion. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was, you know, and we were just loving it. Now, as the vacation wore on, when we got to about three or four days to go, it starts to set in. This is almost over. Now, I guess you could sit around for the next three days and go like, that's not fair. Why don't we get to live here forever? This should, why does anyone else have this house? This is our, you, you could do that. But really, the smart thing to do is to go, oh, my gosh. We get to be here at all. Let's go to the beach. Let's eat the food. Let's drink it up. And then on the last day, if you're smart, you clean up the house. <laughs> because what you want to know is, is that the next family that comes in, you, you, you take pleasure and go like, they're going to have a great time here. I hope they have as much fun as we had. And you celebrate that you got it at all. And I just think like that's like death is the, it, 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 it puts a bookend on this wonderful thing, but it's part of it. And I, and, and so, you know, for me, I'm not afraid of being dead. I, I, I didn't exist for 13 billion years and it didn't bother me one little <laughs> bit. I don't think I will be bothered when I don't exist. Um, I worry about the transition a little bit. Sure. But the way I get through that in many ways is, it's, it's, it's a little bit like when you ride a roller coaster or when you go to a good movie. Have you ever been to a really good movie? Sure. And you're coming out and, you're, and the crowd is buzzing. And then as you're walking out, you see the people lined up that are just <laughs> about ready to go in. 
and you sort of nod at them with a big smile, and you go like, yeah, you, <laughs> you're in for it. Oh, you're going to love this. And you take vicarious joy in, their, in, in what's coming for them. And I think that on some level, we don't deal with death very well because we haven't trained ourselves to take pleasure in other people's joy. So we should almost be mad at those Christians who die in big quotation marks and go up to heaven and come back to write a book all about what heaven was like. Cause it's like, they're spoiling the movie and no one likes a spoiler. It's true. <laughs> and the other thing that, I mean, honestly, the worst thing about, about promising people immortality is that it undermines their sense of urgency to make the most of this life. It, it, it creates in them a false sense that somebody's coming to save us, that somebody's going to fix it, that, that you don't have to work for justice because justice will be taken care of. Who the, cares about the environment? The Cause... Yeah, and so the, the problem with immortality is, is that it tends to undermine the value of this life. It, it, if this life is precious because it's finite and you all of a sudden tell me it's infinite, you devalue my currency. And this life is the only currency that we have. And so I, I, that's, that's my biggest problem. I understand the, the desire when you're at, a, at somebody's funeral to say, we'll see him again, or he's not really dead. But I think that what we need to learn instead is to grieve well. And, and I, I think that's, that's the other part of learning to deal with death, is, is learning to, to, in a sense, to celebrate, to, to celebrate that, that this person got to live it all. If you think in that cosmic lottery term that you brought up, to go like, Joe was so fortunate. Let's talk about all the things Joe did and saw and, and, to, and to teach ourselves and to teach our children that life is precious and, and we should celebrate Joe. We should honor Joe because he made the, he, because in this moment he made the most of it. In that moment he made the most of it. None of us make the most of it in every moment. But we should be challenging one another to be to take it more seriously and and to drink it in more joyfully and i think that sometimes when we're at a funeral and 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 people start to talk about like what really mattered in a person's life not their money not their status but their relationships and their love and their and the moments of transcendence in their lives that in a sense a good funeral inspires me to want to live a better life a good funeral reminds me like that i want to live in such a way that i have a good funeral um, and you say, but you won't be there. And I go like, that's not the point. I want to live in such a way that my life inspires other people to get the most out of their lives. Here's, a, here's a, 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 a something. I, and you say, why do you talk about death so much? Because I work with college students. And death is the elephant in the room for them. When they, are, when they give really? up. When At they, that young of an age. Absolutely. When they give up their non-belief. When they tell somebody they're a, a secularist or an atheist or an agnostic, the first question their Christian parents are going to say to them is, well, but what about death? What about eternal life? Aren't you, what about heaven? I want you to be in heaven. And they don't, if they don't have an answer to that question, they're not able to really make it, make it clear why seeing the world as a secular person can be liberating, can be freeing, can be challenging in a sense of it makes you want to be a better person. And so they need to think about death, but they think about it. They have friends who die in car accidents. They have parents who die. And their question is like, how do you, you know, like ultimately religion is obsessed with death. And you say, well, 
but you're not religious. And I'm like, yeah, I am. I'm wrapped up in life's ultimate questions. And death is the ultimate of ultimate questions. And so, yeah, I talk about this all the time. On a practical note then, so I love the beach house analogy, but if a college student loses a friend, someone who is young and who hasn't had a chance to live a full life, is there any way to comfort that person when they're not religious? Because you can't give them the platitudes religious people would give. It's devastating. And I mean, it, we just had, I just had a student whose best friend was killed in a car accident over spring break. And he came back and he came to my office and he said, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. And we talked about a lot of these things. And I said, like, look, Joey didn't get to experience 70 years or 80 years, but he got to live. Like, he wasn't a cockroach. He wasn't a protozoa. He wasn't a rock on Jupiter. He got to live, and you loved him. And you loved and he loved you. And, 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 and so it's not enough. We would always want more. But really, isn't it better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? Isn't it better to have lived and died than never to have lived at all. If that's true after 100 years, it's true after 10 years or five years or even one minute of suckling at your mother's breast and feeling those, the, the endorphins and the, and the oxytocin. And you say, like, wait, you're not serious about this, are you? And I go, like, I'm dead serious about this. I mean, the truth of the matter is, Hammond, if you told me right now, if you said, Bart, I'm going to take... 20 years off your life. You're going to die next week instead of dying 20 years from now. But in exchange for that, there's a little boy who's going to grow up 100 years from now. And, and in exchange for your 20 years, I guarantee you the world will be such a place where he can run and play and then fall in love with a girl and have sex and get married and, and have babies and raise them and get old. Would you give 20 years of your life just for that? And the answer is, I would. I really would. And you say, well, why? You won't even be there to see it. You won't even exist. I know, but for the next week, the pleasure of knowing that somebody's going to get to experience all the wonderful stuff that I've experienced, that would be worth it to me. That would be worth it to me because I don't just love my life. I love the whole thing. I love life itself. Like, I am committed to the concept. I have a religious, I have a spiritual devotion to life. And, and so once you start to think about it in those terms, in terms of what a privilege it is to be here, even when a young person dies, you recognize that they, that they were privileged. The thing that's the hardest for me, Hammond, is I've spent most of my life working in inner-city ghettos. And when a young person dies who's known almost nothing but suffering, that is an outrage. And it is very difficult for me to deal with. And the only way I know how to deal with it is to recommit myself to trying to shape the world in such a place that it doesn't happen again. But like, there's, it's an unmitigated tragedy. And... There's no amount of supernaturalism that can, that can wish that away. And there's no amount of secular perspective that makes that not horrible. Like, we live in a world, in a universe that is beautiful and amazing, but that is also cruel and unjust. That's the thing. Like, the universe doesn't care. You care. I care. The universe produces creatures, has produced creatures that care. 
Bonobos care. Elephants care. You and I care. But the universe, it doesn't care. And so if there's going to be any justice or any love or any difference made in the world, it falls to us sentient creatures who are capable of love to make that happen. And death is a real good reminder that we'd better be, we'd better be busy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of the emails I get from some people who have not, uh, we talked about, you know, losing your best friend, but like parents who lose a child and, uh, parents who lose a baby at a young age sometimes. And it's, but I think one of the things I always hear from them is that that those few minutes they had with the child or the few years that they had and what it did for them as parents. I mean, those kids had an impact on their lives no matter how long they were here or something like that. And, and I want to believe that not only did those kids have an impact on their lives, but that they had an impact on those children's lives. That for that moment that child felt loved or felt connected in some way. You know, we used to talk about eternity a lot when I was a Christian. And gradually over time, I realized that every fictional depiction of eternity, it was a curse. It was boring. It was like there was... was Like playing harps in clouds, being in hell, whatever. Whatever it was, anything, like even like, or like in these books where the kid is always 19, the forever books, like it's it's misery. Like on some level, life is like a meal and you eat it, and when you're done, you're satisfied and you've had enough. I've, I've sat at the bedsides of a lot of old people who were ready to go. They were like, you know what? I've loved this life. I've enjoyed this life, but I've seen all I can see. Like, I've taken it all in, and I don't have the capacity to take in any more of it, and I'm ready to go. And so, you know, when, when life... But, but what I realized was is that eternity was not so much a quantity of life, but a quality. That there are these moments we have that get locked in, a moment where we really connect, the moment where we, where, where we fell in love or, or where we first saw our child, and there's something happens, and you go like, this moment, this moment has a quality, an eternal quality to it. And you say, but, but that child will grow up and die, and you'll die, and everybody will die, and everybody you know will die, and everybody that was alive 200 years ago is not here. So, so it wasn't really eternal. And yet, in a sense, I think it gets frozen in for that person because once you don't exist anymore, you're locked down. Nothing changes. And so I don't have a metaphysical explanation for it, but what I do know is this, is that, is that a baby even if it dies, had a moment of connection, a moment of awareness, a moment of sensation. And most of us know that at the end of our lives, you watch people and they will scrap and fight and hang on as long as possible for just one more of those things because they're precious. And so whether it's your first moment of consciousness or your last moment of consciousness, they are infinitely valuable because they are so precious. And so when parents come to me and talk to me about their children, I want to focus them on the, the reality that their child's life was not wasted or empty or without meaning. And I want them to focus on the fact that their grief is a part of loving that child. 
and an intrinsic part of it. And then I, I want to ask them a question. Would you rather not have ever loved that child? And invariably they'll say, no, I wouldn't. And then I go like, then this is the hard part of the bargain, but it was a good bargain. Life is a good bargain, even, even though it comes at a cost. And so, you know, I, I sometimes think that religious fantasies that try to convince you that you can have love without paying a price for it cheapen the whole reality. The reality is that life is wonderful, literally full of wonder. That's my, my podcast, which nobody <laughs> listens to. Your podcast, everyone listens to. Nobody listens to my podcast, but it's called The Wonderful Podcast. And I call it that because life is full of wonder, full of wonder. If, if we attune ourselves to listening for it, if, if, we, if, if we sensitize ourselves to feeling it, if we, if we become aware of it, and in a real sense, death is our friend in that endeavor. That's really amazing. It's, it's a type of conversation I am so not used to hearing within our movement, in, just in general, because I've heard a lot of atheists talk, I've read a lot of books by atheists, and this is one of the subjects that we are, as a collective... Weak. Weak. Yeah. <laughs> Very. You know, you, you, I tell a lot of stories... And you say, well, of course you do. You were an evangelical minister <laughs> for 30 years. That's what you guys do. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, is that the reason I tell stories is because stories connect with people in a way that I, just ideas or facts or, re, or reasoned arguments don't. And one of the things I'm convinced of is, is that we need to start learning to tell stories that illustrate the meaning of life. To people and and the secular community typically is afraid of storytelling because it's anecdotes because <laughs> it's anecdotes but also because they go Bart you're manipulating people's emotions and we want to we want to we want to get we, we, we don't we don't want to trust emotions we're, we're all about reason and the truth of the matter is is that most people don't make decisions on the basis of reason they use reason to justify decisions that they've made in another part of their part of their body. Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind, that's what it's all about. It's like, look, moral decision-making isn't made in the reason. You make your moral decisions on a gut level, and then you... You, you it, find a reason to justify exactly. it. Exactly. So, so your, your gut is the elephant, and your reason is the rider, and it acts, like it's, it acts like it's steering, but it's really just along for the ride. And what I, what I would suggest is, is that if you don't learn, if we don't learn to speak to people's emotional center, if we don't learn to move people emotionally, we're not going to be able to help them live better lives. And you say, like, but wait a second. I mean, there, there could be so much, you know, like people don't want to be emotionally manipulated. And I go, like, really? Then why do they go to the movies? Then why do they get on roller coasters? Why do we read books? People sign up to feel. They sign up. They're like, please, I, know, I, I need to feel something. Can you help me? I'll pay you $50 if you can move me, you two. Um, and, and, so, and we talk about how people go to psychics even uh, 
the people who have crossed over, they want a chance to talk to them because they want that connection. And they, people want to feel something. They want to connect, and they want. And so, and so, in a real sense, I'm I'm really convinced that secular, if secularity is just a better way of thinking, it's never it's it'll never be a movement. A movement is always about a better way of life, and a better way of life is always about moving people towards happiness. And one of the things that we need to understand is that there's some issues where we kind of cede the ground to the religious because they've been, when it, for death, for example, they know how to help people feel better for wrong reasons, but they know how to do it. And we, we so often kind of give them you that know, opportunity you know, and we shouldn't have to no, only because we can talk about this stuff and we have a way of thinking about it. That makes sense. And on the contrary, Hammond, they don't like religious people are very loving. And some of those platitudes can be helpful sometimes, right. but I got to tell you something. If you believe in an all loving and all knowing and all powerful God, and your six year old gets run over by a car, that is not comforting. It is not comforting to believe that God orchestrated that or allowed that to happen. One of the things that drove me out of being a Christian that made one of the death, one of the thousand cuts for me was, is I would see tragedies that were just bad. And I felt myself in a position where I had to be an apologist for God and explain how this horrible, terrible thing wasn't really horrible and terrible because somehow it was part of this larger plan or because somehow this person would be off in heaven. And of course, I was thinking to myself, if it's so wonderful to be off in heaven, why are we not all committing mass suicide? Nobody really buys that. And so the difficulty that I had was you say, well, we seed the ground because they have comforting things to say. And the truth of the matter is, is that death is frightening. And those things aren't necessarily that comforting, the, the religious things. But here's the thing that they do have, Hammond. They know what to say. They have a shared narrative that tells them what death means and what happens after you die. And so in that moment of complete confusion and terror and turmoil, they come to you and they know what they're supposed to say to you. And the problem with most atheists... And the problem with most agnostics and the problem with most free thinkers I know is, is that in those moments of tragedy, they haven't thought through what to say. They're just secular enough to make themselves miserable. They're secular enough to get rid of God, but they're not secular enough to, to sort out what makes life meaningful. And because they haven't done that, in that moment, they have nothing to say. And so you say, why do Christians show up at somebody's house with a casserole and secular people don't because I don't want to show up with a casserole and be in this moment where I've got nothing to say, where I am helpless before your grief. And you say, well, gosh, then we need to arm people with, yeah, we need to arm people with stuff like we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes so that when they show up, they can grieve and they can help people grieve and they can give them hopeful thoughts, comforting thoughts, meaningful thoughts, perspective honesty honest perspective but to say like listen let's look at this carefully this is a horrible sad moment but let's look at this carefully isn't on the whole sally's life a good thing can't we can we stop here and even as we're sad that it's over can we say this was a great vacation and 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 if we can't if we can't give people perspective 
then we're doomed to want to stay away from them at all the moments when they most need community. I mean, you, you guys, you bloggers, you know, all your online stuff, and, 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 you know, we all know that in those crucial moments, an email doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. A Facebook post doesn't help that much. The online, you know, at some point you need a human being, a breathing person sitting in the room with you, sitting Shiva, if you will, and saying, like, let's go through this together. And it's impossible for us to handle being with each other if we don't have a narrative and a context that enables us to make sense of it. It's powerful. So that was my conversation with Hemet. I hope you liked it. Uh, I, I, I cut it off right when he said something really nice about me, like that's powerful or something like that, because, you know, every now and then it's nice to hear somebody say something nice and then just leave it there. So I hope you dug the conversation. If you got comments, if you got thoughts, if you got anything for me, send it to barcampolo.org. And if you've got some time, then uh, wait until next week when I'll be back with a really cool conversation. Thanks for being part of this community. Thanks for being part of this world. Thanks for being on the planet at the same time as me because that means we're connected. Talk to you later. Bye. For more information about the work of Bar Campolo, please visit barcampolo.org.